0: Uh, I love that tune. You did it well first service. You nailed it second service. I don't know what the there was a difference or maybe I was just ready for it. (laughs) I'm throwing your music right there just so you know. Um, But Danny you are a gift to me man. I just appreciate it. It's nice to have another 80s rocker in the building. Um, I hear a few upstairs too. There you go. (laughs) Hey I wanted to throw something at you here. Um, it's actually extra. This I uh, thought of this for service, and I want to just kind of hit you with it, so you don't have to pay for this. This is free. The um, About a week ago or so, um, Pastor John Piper down the street lost his father. His father uh, died. He was 90, boy, I don't remember the exact. Piper is 63, and I don't know, close to 90-something. And um, I've known John through the, through the years. I used to work down at Bethlehem Baptist years ago. Um, And I read a memoir he had of his father, and and his father was a dear man. At the end of his life, it was horrible. It was one of those, you know, kind of lost the mind kind of thing. But he lasted a long time. But his dad was an evangelist. His dad would go from place to place to place all over the South. John Piper is originally from South Carolina, and he would go from place to place to place and. And uh, just going to, uh, back in the time when you'd do a Sunday evening service, invite all your friends and, and they would hear the message of Jesus Christ, and people would respond to it. and, I, uh, and John Piper had a lot of respect for his dad, and, and anyway, I was down in, I was in San Diego. And I happened to meet a guy, and i, I uh, he heard I was from Minneapolis. He says, do you know John Piper? And I said, yeah. And I figured, you know, John's kind of famous with all the books he's written. He said, no, not him, his dad. This guy was about 80 years old. He said, his dad led me to Christ 50-some years ago. And it was really a cool, cool thing. But I was thinking of this, kind of hit me for service, that um, John was there uh, when his dad his dad passed away, and it's a, he's a beautiful memoir of saying words to, to his father uh, that are really touching. And uh, I, I just, I know many of you in this room don't come from a family situation where you maybe have an affection for your father or respect for him. He has never earned that respect, and, and that, that could very well be. And so when you sing a song like we just sang a little bit ago, where, where it says, You alone are father, you alone are good, you alone are savior, you alone are God. It's very difficult for you to get that in your mind. What does God look like if he's like a father? And I I grew up in a family where, um, uh, you know, there were times where my dad was very angry with me. I'm sure a couple, two, three of those were justified. (laughs) Yikes. Uh, Yeah, man, if I did, if my kids did half. No. Uh, I'll tell you that when you're 30. But the, um, but uh, I never doubted whether or not my dad loved me. Never. Never. Even in the worst. Of situations, I uh, never doubt it whether my dad loved me. And so this morning, I, w- I want you to just to, what's going to follow is a message. And it's really more of a gift to you than it is for you to feel burdened that you need to go do things. Sure, there's things that, but I want you to hear this as a gift from your loving Heavenly Father who's pleased with you, who 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 loves you like you can't ever grasp. And I, I was praying during, during, uh, during worship how can i communicate this love and i can't i just cannot communicate to you the kind of love god has for you and i hope that some of this touches touches on that now i'm reading a book right now it's actually more of a tome than a book it's about that thick it's by doris kearns goodwin it's called team of rivals uh the political genius of abraham lincoln and i'm wow amazing a lot of things have been written about abraham lincoln Obviously, most think he, people think he's probably the best, uh, the greatest president we ever had. Uh, there's been some recent studies done, which I think are very accurate, and I like Lincoln a lot, but I think some recent studies have said that had Lincoln not had the Civil War, he would never have been known as a great president. He was the first uh, Republican president ever. It was a new party at that time, which is interesting. They call it the Grand Old Party, and it didn't start till 1856 or whatever, 1854, what? But anyway, it was kind of from the Whig party, they kind of fell apart and became the Republican Party. Um, and the, uh, the interesting thing is he followed from Jefferson to Jackson, kind of this, this, uh, this Democrat way of doing things. And he would now have shifted everything. Uh, Lincoln's policies, if it wasn't for the Civil War, would have been viewed very unfavorably. But the Civil War did come, and he was the exact right man for the exact right Time. It is amazing. You want to call it miraculous, even that this unknown, relative unknown, even got nominated for president from the Republican Party. There were four candidates on the bill. Lincoln was the most unknown of them. Those four candidates. Um, Or a man by the name of um, Abraham Lincoln, obviously. Then Salmon, which is an unfortunate name all in itself. He always hated his name. Kind of fishy, he said, about his name. But anyway, um, Salmon uh, Chase, uh, Edward Bates, and the man who was probably the most famous of all of them was a man by the name of William Seward. And these guys were political rivals in within the Republican Party. And what Lincoln in his genius figured out how to do was he said all three of those guys are more popular than me. But there are things about each one of those three that make it difficult for any one of their, their rivals to vote for the other guy. You know, the Bates guys couldn't vote for the, for the Chase guys, and the Chase guys couldn't vote for the Seward guys. What Lincoln figured out is, how can I be number two to everybody? And he won the, Dem- or the Republican National Convention on the fourth ballot because of it. It was genius. It was, it was a stroke of genius how he, how he did that. And afterwards, the paper said, who? Who is this guy? I mean, they barely knew who Abraham Lincoln was. When Abraham Lincoln became president, he had to put himself, something that uh, it's not in the Constitution, but but, um, uh, George Washington put in place, was this idea of having advisors called a cabinet. And there was uh, roughly uh, seven or eight men. Uh, This picture shows eight. The difference is how you you count some people, whether or not they're in and out of the cabinet. Most people think at this time there were seven. But anyway, there were seven different people. And Lincoln wanted to go out and get the best and the brightest possible. He didn't care about party, he went and got the best and brightest. You know all three of the guys he put in there? He put these three rivals. He put Edward Bates, Salmon Chase, and uh, uh, William Seward back in his cabinet, his three rivals. He made them the three top positions, Secretary of State for, for Seward, uh, Secretary of, uh, or Attorney General for Bates, and Salmon Chase was Department of Treasury. The three highest offices he gave to his rivals. He wanted the best and the brightest in his cabinet. On March, he got elected in November of 1860, and on March 4th of 1861, it was a long period. Now we don't wait quite that long, now we just go January. But on that time, they waited until March 4th for the inauguration. And, and Lincoln gives this inaugural address, the first, link, the first address. He obviously had two of them. The first one um, was before the Civil War started. A lot of people think that this address and the. Uh, the um, Election of Abraham Lincoln is what sparked the Civil War. Some people think that's what started it. In between the time when Lincoln was elected president and he became president, many states started seceding from the Union. Hello, nice job. Now he's got this incredible, he hasn't even taken office yet, and people are seceding from the Union, starting with South Carolina. South Carolina was the first one to do it. That's March 4th. March 5th. At his office, and as he's sitting at his desk, this is a reenactment of it, as he's sitting at his desk, the first piece of paper, the first document that Abraham Lincoln gets is a note from Major Anderson at Fort Sumter, and it says this, it says that the provisions would be exhausted before an expedition could be sent to their relief. In other words, the, the, the supplies at Fort Sumter, which is in, of all states, South Carolina, are going to run out before you can get those things casually there. So you have to upgrade and you have to supply this thing. To supply it would be going through a blockade, which, which uh, South Carolina put in, which would be an act of war. So this is the very first document he's given. One of the generals replies back and says, I see no alternative but as a surrender to give up the fort. Lincoln, in his inaugural address on March 4th, said, I will not give up any property to this rising effort. I will stand for everything. He's in a quandary. He he can't sleep at night. This is the first, you know, welcome to the job. Thanks a lot. There's no honeymoon period at all. This is what Lincoln was faced with. Day one. While he's faced with that, what's his, he comes to his cabinet multiple times for advice. I want to read a paragraph from uh, her book, Doris Kearns Gunwood's book, about what's happening in the cabinet. While Lincoln was learning more about the facts of the situation, his cabinet colleagues were engaged in a series of petty feuds. Chase considered Smith, that's another one I, I didn't mention him, but he was another one of the, uh, the seven advisors, a cipher, and Bates, a humdrum lawyer. Seward was furious when Chase and Bates insisted on two appointments in his own district and stated that that would be humiliating to him. Now let me just describe that. What happens is, in those days, when you became president, every government job that was not elected, you got fired from. And the new president and his administration got to put in place every single job. So there'd be people, literally a thousand people, looking for jobs in the government. W- sometimes waiting outside the White House doors from nine in the morning till nine at night, at times trying to get jobs. I want to be post office, you know, uh, post office, postmaster general of Podunk, Minnesota, or something. Great, you get it. And 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 Seward is upset because these two guys want to offer jobs to people they know in Seward State of New York. He says, I can't believe it. I get to pick the people in my, they're they're fighting over who gets to be post office boy. Seward indignantly wrote, I would sooner attack either of those gentlemen in the open street than consent to oppose any local appointment they might desire to make in their respective states. From his Treasury Department office overlooking the White House grounds, Chase complained to Lincoln that Seward would certainly have no cause to congratulate himself if he persists in denying the only favor he can show me. Blair Sr., that's uh, Blair, is another one of the... uh, Cabinet members, echoing the sentiment of of his son, grumbled to Chase that all the best missions abroad had been given to Seward's old Whig friends. So all the ambassadorships were given to other people. I believe our Republican Party will not endure unless there is a fusion of the Whig and Democratic element, he noted ruefully. We're on the verge of a complete collapse. I don't think any of us understand how intense the Civil War was. We lost more people in that battle that happened over those years in the Civil War, than all of other wars combined. More Americans died in that particular conflict. And it was not pretty. It would be like me preaching right here, and this half being on the North, and this half being on the South. That's how intense it was. Lincoln's own brother-in-law was a brigadier general for the South after Lincoln offered him a position in the North. He said, I can't do it. He took him and his family to go to the South. It was crazy. And these guys are arguing about who's going to be the postmaster in some little town. Gentlemen, will you focus for a minute? Now, <laughs> Jesus faced the exact same thing. The passage we're going to look at today in John chapter 13 describes a situation uh, that is mirrored in the all the Gospels have this particular situation. It is the last meal that Jesus is going to have with his disciples. It's called the Last Supper. Jesus is going to celebrate the Passover. He's going to have to do it uh, early because he's not going to be around for the Passover. He's going to be crucified on Friday. He's going to celebrate this on Thursday. I want to look at one of the other gospel accounts to give you a little flair of what's happening. What's going on in Jesus' time of need? There's this huge thing, this huge, if you want to call it, civil war type thing in front of him. And what are his disciples worried about? Luke chapter 22 is where I want to look. And then we'll go into John chapter 13 and look at John's account. uh, Luke chapter 22. When the hour had come, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and he broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, After the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Jesus comes. It's the last supper. Jesus, the tension is incredible in the room. He's announcing to them, I'm not going to... Eat again. This is it. This is the last meal I'm going to have on the earth. Not only that, but one of you guys are on the table. One of you guys is going to betray me by kissing me in the dark. You couldn't find where I was in this garden. Somebody's going to come up to me and kiss me, and these troops are going to come and take me away. One of you is going to be my betrayer. What are the disciples thinking about Look at the second half of that, verse 23. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. So again, not worried about Jesus here. That's really important stuff, Jesus. You just shared. But Jesus, wonder which one of us it is. And then here comes the here comes the gut punch. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Hello, what? There. Yeah, I'm going to go and it's going to have the nails and the cross and the whipping thing. And you guys are talking about who can... <laughs> Help me out here. Jesus said to them, the kings of the... I'm that Jesus doesn't say, shut up. He doesn't say that. I... Man, I'm glad I wasn't Jesus because that would have been. There would have been Iron Range words in here too. That... <laughs> The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Trick question. Jesus answers, It's, it's, is it not the one who's at the table? No one's answering here. I think so, Jesus. And Jesus says, uh-uh, but I am among you as the one who serves. Who's more important, the waiter or the guy getting the fancy meal? I think it's the guy getting the fancy meal. Jesus says, uh, you're 0 for 2 today, guys. It's the guy who serves. We are entering into part 3 of the Gospel of John. We get ready. Boom. New New, uh, Chris Walker made this up, new graphic and everything, our third, third and final part of the Gospel of John, suffering and glory, Jesus Christ's procession to the cross, and we are right now in John chapter, just starting John chapter 13, there's 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, through about half of the 20th chapter, so it leaves about a chapter and a half, the rest of that is basically three days. John chapter 13 to 20 in the middle is three days, we're on Thursday, that takes us through Sunday. It's amazing. Uh, John just expands what goes on in these last few days. Now, what's Jesus going to show here? He's going to show something in the Gospel of John account of this that you don't get in any other account. It is awesome. And I am so inadequate to share this with you. I just, ugh. Let me just read this to you. John's account. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world. And to go to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He now showed them. Now, if you're just stop right there for a second. I don't know how you feel about your Bible. If you have your Bible with you, uh, some people don't like to write in it. I, I like to write in my Bible. I think it's okay. Uh, I think that God's Word is holy, but the Bible it's just it's a book. The the words are what's holy. So, so if you're writing your Bible, dude, underline that phrase. He's now going to show them what? The full extent of their love. I mean, put your mouth around the shotgun and pull both triggers to get the double barrel. That works for me. I'm a shotgun shooter. But, you know, boom, full extent, fire hose, wah, here it comes. What's going to follow is the full extent of Jesus Christ's love. Now, that word, love, the love, boo, oh, that word is thrown around a lot. What does that word mean? What does the word love mean? We think it means a feeling. And I think it is more than a feeling. I like the word, it is an affection. Because an affection is not necessarily something that is simply emotional. Emotional. The, the word love, we have—we're the first generation, I think, that really doesn't understand. We have this concept of of love because it's a whoo whoo. I think I'm in love, or maybe I have the stomach flu. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> something's going on. It's this temporary feeling, this whoosh, this rush, this heavy duty thing. We're first generation that now says for wedding vows. Some people are saying no longer till death do us part. We're saying as long as love shall last. If I don't love you anymore, whoo—that's all I promised. See you later. You know, that's, that's what love now means. One of my favorite, Larry Norman. Anybody like Larry Norman? Rocker? There you go. Larry Norman. Woo! There are not many of us left. <laughs> Randy Stonehill, Larry Norman started the whole Christian rock movement. Um, Larry Norman had this line. It's one of my favorite about the Beatles. He said, the Beatles said, all you need is love. And then they broke up. That's one of my favorite Larry Norman lines. Uh, the Beatles said, all you need is love. And then they broke up. So, is, help me out here. Is love just a feeling? Because those four guys hardly talk to each other for years. Is that what love is? What is love? I think love is more than I think love is how you receive others. How you really receive them. My wife has been an amazing thing to teach me what love is. Just simple little things. My wife and I are about as different as possible, She's good looking and I'm, no. I mean, just there's, we are very, very different. But one thing I know about her is I have her heart. She has mine. I know that. We don't agree on just about anything else. <laughs> is there anything? I can't think of anything. <laughs> but I know that. There's just a certain thing, I just know that she just, loved, we love to snuggle, and there's just a feeling of having each other's hearts. That's being received by someone. This morning what Jesus wants to show you is in your worst and when you're at your ugliest and what Carol and I call the warts of our lives, when they're exposed, how does Jesus receive you in that? He's going to show you the full extent of his love this morning. John, 1 John three sixteen. It says, this is how we know what love is. I'm just going to make sure I don't miss this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We don't even know what love is until we look at what Christ did. Jesus Christ, that's what love is. The Bible defines it that way. Jesus Christ laid his life down. Laid his life down. Not convenient. Laid it down. And that's what it means to love. Now, what does this full extent of his love look like? Verse 2. The evening meal was being served. Jesus is there to have a meal with them. And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Now, if you've got different versions of the Bible in front of you, verse 2 could read different ways. It's possible, that, and it's ambiguous in the original language. So it could go either way. It could be that the devil had, had prompted Judas, like it says there, prompted Judas to do something. Or it could be that the devil had already decided... To prompt Judas. It could be either way. It kind of doesn't really matter. But, but it could be either way. So if you see it a little bit differently in your Bible there. But just know that's the, that's the setting of what's happening. The, the meal is being served. And Judas is going through this intense thing of thinking about really going through with this betrayal. Verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he'd come from God and was returning to God. Now here's the next word you should circle. That little word So. Sucker we'll on that. So he got it from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped round him. Okay, okay, you got to think about this. this. Is so upside down. Think about this. Here's three things. Look at the, look at the logic. Verse three. Jesus knew three things. One, that the Father had put all things under his power. Bill Gates times infinity oh can't do the math it's big right jesus knew that father put all things under his power two that he had come from god jesus knew this clearly that he'd come from god and three he knew that he was shortly going back to god right third thing he was returning to god that's what that's what's in there so this is the this is the logic now he knows these things so he says what is wrong with you guys Bow down to me constantly. Serve me. He doesn't do that. So what does he do? He, he goes and grabs a towel and a basin. He starts cleaning their feet. In a culture where people wear sandals, it was dirty. They didn't have any lamisil to clear up the old uh, fungi stuff there you got going on. So I'm sure they had different shades of brown and green going on. These were not clean, happy feet. These were dirty feet. In fact, this job was so lowly that if you were in the Jewish culture, you got not another Jewish servant to do it. You, got a, you hired a Gentile. It was too lowly even to hire a Jewish servant to do it. You got a Gentile to do it. Ee ee ah. In between the toes and the whole thing. Ha, <laughs> Okay? This is gross. This is a gross job. It's the... I cannot think of much. I mean, my one big fault is my feet reek. Ask anyone in my family. You know, it's just, I'm sitting in a chair and there's like a five foot invisible shield, you know. <laughs> shields up, you know, walk around. This is gross. And that's what Jesus decides to do. That's, he's trying to show him the full extent of his love. What's the, what's the greatest way I could serve you? And it's to wash your feet. Now the thing that I hope for you, is really hard for you to compute. And John doesn't want to make it more easy to compute. He says in verse 3, all these things about Jesus being true, of how powerful he is and how awesome he is and how almighty he is in every possible way, and yet how he's a servant. And the radical concept here is, is God is your servant. And don't take that out of context. He's also almighty God. But he's both. If you're familiar with Psalm 23, Psalm 23 talks about, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, goes through this beautiful metaphor about shepherding and letting, uh, you're a sheep and uh, you follow Jesus. He shifts the metaphor in verse 5. The verse 5 of Psalm 23, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, That's interesting. The the picture here is David, who's the writer of Psalm 23, King David, is saying that I'm sitting at a table, and Jesus is my waiter and my busboy and the whole thing. He fills my cup up. God Almighty is my my servant. You prepare a table before me. Who prepares tables? Servants. Who anoints people? Servants and, and people of lower status Than those getting anointed. Usually kings were anointed. Whoa. That is a radical concept that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. I'm going to serve you. Now, most of the go back on there just for a second, Sonia. Uh, it says, if you look at verse 5, it says, after he poured water, basin began to wash his disciples' feet and he dried them with towel. Towel was wrapped around him. Now, so he's going from disciple to disciple, cleaning their feet, and most of them. Uh, great, fine, no big deal. There's one guy who says whoo 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 whoo, and that's Peter. I, lo- I love this guy, Peter, and he gets it half right because he understands the magnitude of what's happening. The other guys, I think, don't really get it at all. Verse six, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, and I picture Simon Peter as kind of being like a guy from the from the south, you know, Lord. Are you going to wash my feet? Which is implying, get away from me. You will, n- no. Are you going to wash my feet, boy? I don't think so. That's what the question means. Of course he'd wash him washing everybody's feet. Comes to Peter now and Peter says, let me get this straight. You're going to wash my feet? Uh-uh. And Peter, John replies, or Jesus replies, excuse me, you do not realize now what I'm doing. But later you will understand. And Peter says it emphatically. I love this guy. This guy has, that's what I love about Peter because I'm this way too sometimes. He has this brain and he has this mouth and there ain't no filter in between the two. No, its Was that my inside? I thought that was just inside my head. Did that come out? That came out. And he just says it. He just says, No! No! You shall never wash my feet and one thing I love about too about Peter is he's emphatic we're going to see in like one verse he completely changes his mind he's incredibly malleable but he's like no 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 okay you know uh, no you shall never wash my feet and Jesus says to him and look at the pronouns here unless I wash you you have no part with me you understand that that's huge if you're here today as a follower of Jesus Christ you, and you think you can follow Jesus so that you can add something to Jesus, let me just drop that right here. Jesus says, if you're not allowing him to serve you, he says, you can't have part of me. You've got to let him be everything, both God and servant. What do you get to be? Trailer. I mean, you just get to along for the ride, man. He's the one who gets to serve you. But God, I just need to serve God. Hoo-ha! You don't need to serve God. Yeah, I hope that, you know, if you think, oh, I just have to go to this church because I have to work in the Sunday school. No, you don't. You don't need to work with kids. God will raise up somebody who says, I just can't not help it work with kids. You can quit. If you're here working with kids because you think that's why I serve Jesus, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh-uh. You can let that go. Jesus says to follow me, You got you gotta let me serve you. Now look at how Peter gives a great answer, a good answer. He says, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my hand as well. So in other words, he wants to climb himself into that basin there. And I like this picture. It kind of looks like this crabby Peter. I don't know. I don't, I don't know where that came. I mean, it's interesting. It's like, oh, to suppose if I have to let you, I will die. I will. But. Okay, so he's climbing, he wants to climb in there, he says, man, okay, feet thing, if that's what makes me a follower of you, we don't really get that at all, but okay, I'm going all out. I want to be a follower of you, Jesus, whatever it takes, you can just wash me, I guess, you know, whatever, do the thing you do and, and wash me up. And Jesus' answer is an even, even better theological answer. He says, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body's clean. He's looking right at Peter. And he says to Peter, dude, you're clean. Why are you clean? You're clean because you trust in me, Peter. You're clean because you trust in me. You need to let me continually serve you till the day you die. But you're clean because you trust in me. And he says, and you, looking in the room, are clean. And then he gets real specific. Though not every one of you. One of you doesn't trust in me. One of you in this room doesn't trust in me. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. Can you imagine the the pain of being betrayed is one thing. Can you imagine the pain of being betrayed and knowing about it? being omniscient and knowing everything and, and knowing someone from the very beginning when you brought him on the team. In John 6, 64, you can see this. Jesus said clearly, way back in John 6, when we were there, he said, he knew that some didn't believe in him. In fact, he knew who was going to follow him and he knew who was going to betray him. He, he knew. All the way along, showing this guy love. Verse 12, he says, When, when he had finished washing their feet... All the disciples' feet, including Judas, get their feet washed. Can you imagine what that moment looked like? He put on his clothes. he taken off his outer clothes. He put those back in returned to his place. And he's going to make a teaching moment out of this. He says, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Don't diminish this. When I say Jesus Christ is your servant, He is your servant. But he's Lord and he's teacher too. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And that that order is very important, by the way. You let Jesus Christ wash your feet first. It's very important. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. There are people. It, it, I, I, I like literature. I'm not a good writer, but I am. A, I love reading, and I've come across something here written by a name of Mac, uh, by, uh, a man by the name of Max Licato. I love Max Licato. He makes things come alive for me. He gives pictures and words that make me feel like I was right there. And I want to read you, it, it's a chapter long, but he goes through this scenario. And I want to close this morning by reading from Max Licato and what he talks about this event. And just kind of focus on this picture I have up here. And, and if this were you there, how would you feel as you go through the events of this, this cleansing? This is chapter 5 from uh, Max Licato's book, um, Gentle Thunder, Hearing God Through the Storm. It's not easy watching Jesus wash these feet. To see the hands of God massaging the toes of men is, well, it's not right. The disciples should be washing his feet. Nathaniel should pour the water. Andrew should carry the towel. But they don't. No one does. Rather than serve, they argue over which one is the greatest. What disappointment their words must have brought Jesus. I'm the number one apostle. No, I'm more spiritual than you. You guys are crazy. I brought more people to hear Jesus than anyone. As they argue, the basin sits in the corner untouched. The towel lies on the floor unused. The servant's clothing hangs on the wall unworn. Each disciple sees these things. Each disciple knows their purpose, But no one moves, except Jesus. As they bicker, he stands. But he doesn't speak. He removes his robe and takes the servant's wrap off the wall. Taking the pitcher, he pours the water into the basin. He kneels before them with the basin and sponge and begins to wash. The towel that covers his waist is also the towel that dries their feet. It's not right. Isn't it enough that these hands will be pierced in the morning? Must, must they scrub grime tonight? And the disciples, do they deserve to have their feet washed? Their affections have waned, their loyalties have wavered. We want to say, look at John, Jesus. This is the same John who told you to destroy a city. The same John who demanded that you censure a Christ follower who wasn't in your group. Why are you washing his feet? And James, skip James, he wanted the seat of honor. He and his brother wanted special treatment. Don't give it to him. Give him the towel. Let him wash his own feet. Let him learn a lesson. And while you're at it, Jesus, you might as well skip Philip. He was told, or he told you, there wasn't enough food to feed the large crowd. You tested him. he flunked. You gave him the chance and he blew it. And Peter, sure, these are the feet that walked on water, but they're also the feet that thrashed about in the deep. He didn't believe you. Sure, he confessed you as the Christ, but he's also the one who told you that you didn't have to die. He doesn't deserve to have his feet washed. None of them do. When you were about about to be stoned in Nazareth, did they come to your defense? When the Pharisees took up rocks to kill you, did they volunteer to take your place? You know what they have done. And what's more, you know what they are about to do. You can already hear them snoring in the garden. They'll stay awake. Uh, They'll say they'll stay awake, but they won't. You'll sweat blood. They'll saw logs. You can hear them sneaking away from the soldiers. They'll make promises tonight. They'll make tracks tomorrow. Look around the table, Jesus. Out of the 12, how many will stand with you in Pilate's court? How many will share with you the Roman whip? And when you fall under the weight of the cross, which disciple will be close enough to spring to your side and carry your burden? None of them will, not one. A stranger will be called because no disciple will be near. Don't wash their feet, Jesus. Tell them to wash yours. Now that's what we want. That, that's what we want to say. Why? Because of the injustice. Because we don't want to see our king behaving as a servant? God on his hands and knees, his hair hanging around his face? Do we object because we don't want to see God washing feet? Or do we object because we don't want to do the same? Stop and think for a minute. Don't we have some people like like the disciples in our world? Double-tongued promised keepers? Fair-weather friends? What they said and what they did are two different things. Or well, maybe they didn't leave you alone at the cross, but maybe they left you alone with the bills. Or your question, or your illness. Or maybe you were just left at the altar, or in the cold holding the bag. Vows forgotten, contract abandoned. Logic says put up your fist. Fists. Jesus says, Fill up the basin. Logic says, bloody his nose. Jesus says, wash his feet. Logic says, she doesn't deserve it. Jesus says, you're right. But you don't deserve it either. I don't understand how God can be so kind to us, but he is. He kneels before us, takes our feet in his hands, and washes them. Please understand that in washing the disciples' feet, Jesus is washing ours. You and I are in this story. We are at the table. That's us being cleansed, not from our dirt, but from our sins. And the cleansing is not just a gesture. It is a necessity. Listen to what Jesus said. If I don't wash your feet, you are not one of my people. Jesus did not say, if you don't, if you don't wash your feet, why not? Because we cannot. We cannot cleanse our own filth. We cannot remove our own sin. Our feet must be in his hands. Don't miss the meaning here. To place our feet in the basin of Jesus is to place the filthiest parts of our lives into his hands. In the ancient East, people's feet were caked with mud and dirt. The servant of the feast saw to it that the feet were cleansed. Jesus is assuming the role of the servant who washed the grimiest part of your life if you let him. The water of the servant comes only when we confess that we are dirty. Only when we confess that we are caked with filth, that we have walked forbidden trails and followed wrong paths. We tend to be proud like Peter and resist, I'm not that dirty Jesus, just sprinkle a few drops on me and I'll be fine. What a lie. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we are fooling ourselves and the truth is not in us. We will never be cleansed Until we confess we are dirty, we will never be pure until we admit we are filthy. And we will never be able to wash the feet of those who have hurt us until we allow Jesus, the one we have hurt, to wash ours. You see, that is the secret of forgiveness. You will never forgive anyone more than God has already forgiven you. Only by letting Him wash your feet can you have strength to wash those of another. Still hard to imagine? Is it still hard to consider the thought of forgiving the one who hurt you? If so, go one more time to that room. Watch Jesus as he goes from disciple to disciple. Can you see him? Can you hear the water splash? Can you hear him shuffle on the floor to the next person? Good. Keep that image. John 13, 12 says, When he had finished washing their feet... Please note, he finished washing their feet. That means no one was left out. Why is that important? Because that also means he washed the feet of Judas. Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. He gave his traitor equal attention. In just a few hours, Judas' cleansed feet would guide the Roman guard to Jesus. But at this moment, they are caressed by Christ. It's not to say it was easy for Jesus. It's not to say it is easy for you. That is to say that God will never call you to do what he hasn't already done. Let me close by asking you two questions. I hope these are gifts. I want this to be a gift. I want want you to bask in the love of Jesus this morning. Whatever your view of God is, if if you view him as an angry father, you have to review him with a smile on his face, welcoming you to himself. Come home. First question is this. Have you let Jesus Christ wash your feet? Are you constantly letting Jesus Christ wash your feet? The first question of, of the sub-question there is, have you ever in your life allowed Jesus Christ to be your Savior? Unless I wash your feet, you can have no part in me you come to a point in your life where you're saying, Jesus Christ, I need help. I need a transformation like Danny sang about. This cross is sufficient for everything. Christ died on the cross, an infinite penalty to take this sin, but you have to let him. You have to let him be your savior. You know, he's the the savior of the entire world, but is he your savior? That simple message is what I had missed going to church for 18 years. I individually needed to let Jesus Christ wash my feet. Not just, oh, it's a nice concept. No, I individually had to tell Jesus, Jesus Christ, I want you to be my Savior. I want to follow you as Lord. Have you got your feet washed? Secondly, second sub-part of that is, are you continually letting him wash your feet? We look at the cross, and we look at that as for other people. That's for weak people. But we're good Christian people. Then I got involved in something, and oh my gosh, I can't even believe I did this. Let me just say something loud and clear. The cross is for all sins, especially yucky sins, gross sins. Worst thing you can imagine in your life. That thing, if if I'd show on the screen right now, your face would turn five shades of red about your life. That's what that cross is for. And when Christ died on that cross, he had fully the sin that you're thinking of right now in your own life in his mind. He knew what he was dying for, and he'd do it for you. That's the kind of love he has—the full extent of his love. You cannot possibly think of something so gross that Jesus wouldn't say, "I'd die for that," in a heartbeat. But we think, "Oh, it's so gross. I can. Ne- I gotta. I gotta. I gotta read my Bible more. or I have to teach Sunday school, or I gotta do something to make up for this." You gotta do nothing. Just trust him. Let him wash it. This morning, my prayer is that people walk out that door with something that they've been holding and just let it go. Let God have it. It's a sin for which Jesus Christ died for. It grieves me that he had to die for it, but he did, and he gladly took it. Let him have it. There's one Savior in the world, and no offense, but it ain't you. It's Christ. Let him have it. Now, second question, second big question is, if you come to a point in your life where you have trusted Christ, and that's something that I want to ask you when I close in prayer, just to think, is there any areas, Lord, that I'm not allowing you to cleanse me and I'm trying to work out on my own? Is there an area where just I need forgiveness and cleansing of? But once you've gone through that, once you've allowed Christ, you trusted Christ, you've leaned back into his arms and said, I'll, I'll, I'll trust you, I'll treasure you alone, I'll turn from my sin, and I'll turn to you. Once you've done that, the second question is this, is there anyone, Jesus said this whole thing is an example. You do it, I do it to you, but then you do it to others. Is there someone in your life that God is asking you to serve? Oh, you don't understand, though, they're lower than me. <laughs> Whatever the math is there, I got better math, it's, you know, Jesus and a towel in a basin. Is there someone? It's the Holy Spirit bringing someone to your mind that you should serve? I prayed about this after second service. or singing the last song and I was standing right there and just boom! Just two people came clear to my mind. That I, it's just people that are hard for me. They're difficult for me. Long, long old time relationships that have been a difficult. I I don't know exactly. I'm still asking God exactly how. Maybe I'll get that this service. Uh, how, Lord, do you want me to serve these people? But I know I'm supposed to. I'm going to close in prayer and I'm going to ask the Lord by His Spirit to reveal those things uh, to you. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I just feel very inadequate about. Describing your love. I know that I have been touched by it and it has made every bit of difference in my life, and yet I feel like I can never explain well enough the full extent of your love. And so, Holy Spirit, in words that I can't say, show people in this room, in spite of their sin and in spite of your awesome sovereignty of who you are, how much you love them. How much right now you are on your knees with a basin and a towel, calling the people of Hope Community to put their feet in the in the basin. So Lord God, I don't know, there might be some people in this room for the first time in their lives, they want to trust you. They have never known that their sins could be forgiven until this very moment. And so this morning, God, I ask that right now, in the quietness of their own hearts and just between them and you, you'd allow them to open their hearts up to trust you, Jesus Christ, that, that they would have the courage to trust you as Savior and to follow you as Lord. Just grant that to them. Lord, I pray that they would be able to articulate that to you, that yes, they want to follow you, that they want to have you be their sin bearer. Lord, there's other of us, others of us who maybe years ago have went through that process, but walking in this world through a variety of things, our feet have gotten dirty, dusty, muddy, tar on them. And no matter how many times we've uh, tried to clean this up, it just spreads, and it gets worse. So God, right now, I just pray that we'd stop trying. Stop trying to cleanse ourselves. And let you cleanse us. Holy Spirit, I pray, by the power of your spirit, and everyone who's listening right now, I pray you'd reveal to them what it is, that area of their life where they're not trusting in you as Savior the areas where they're not, they're being like Peter, saying, I will not let you cleanse me. I pray, Lord God, you bring that to mind. Holy Spirit, also I ask that you would now bring to mind names, perhaps pictures of people that we are to now go and wash their feet. Some way, Lord, you want us to serve them. So I pray for that. You would bring those those people to mind, Lord God. And we do it out of fullness. Not because we're trying to earn anything. We just do it because we've been forgiven much. So Jesus, thanks for that. You are a great Savior. We pray in Christ's name.